You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Joshua Gantz, who is a professor of strategy at UT, the Rotman School. Welcome, Josh. Today, we're going to talk about these two amazing books that have come out recently. And I, I think it's amazing you're able to get these out so quickly. But the first one is called The Pandemic Information Gap. And the second one is called The Pandemic Information Solution. And even though this one is the more recent one, I think that it's best to read them both in conjunction with one another because there's so many issues here. This is not simply an updated version of this, but rather no. it supplements and answers some of the questions that were raised in the first book. I also have to mention that Joshua is the author of these two books, well, co-author of this book called Prediction Machines, The Simple Economics of Artificial Intelligence, which is a fantastic book. And this one, which is really, I think, a very profound book, it's called The the disruption dilemma. And I think today we'll probably will not have time to talk about these and we'll have to get you back another time to talk about those because there's so much more important and pressing things we need to talk about. So let me start by just asking a very high level question. I think Jay Bhattacharya, who is at Stanford, health economics professor, he said that the coronavirus is sort of the single biggest failure of the economics profession in its entire existence. Now, I don't know whether that's an exaggeration, but it does seem like many economists have been more or less silent on the coronavirus epidemic or haven't said anything that's been particularly insightful or useful. But you've been one of the folks that has really decided to make this a focus of your attention and to bring economic reasoning into the discussion. Why do you think economists have been paralyzed by what's going on? I'm not sure that the characterization is really fair. Certainly, almost a year ago, when this calamity first became apparent, there was a deluge of economic papers. Many economists all over the shop said, okay, you know, here's my field. What's the COVID-adjacent thing that I can devote to this? There was a lot of papers, mostly in macroeconomics. There were a lot of data-driven papers and other things like that that were done very, very quickly. And... So I think that occurred. And I also don't think it's fair that this would be the greatest failure (laughs) of economics. I'm pretty sure, you know, between the Treaty of Versailles leading all the way to the Great Depression, that would be a good one. A financial crisis might be up there, I think. Exactly. I don't think it's going to rank. But what is definitely true, given the scale of this problem, economists who looked at infectious diseases, most notably AIDS, There was some work done, but it was to say it was a fringe would be almost an understatement. There was no work done on if we have a global pandemic, what is the optimal macroeconomic response? There was nothing there. I think a consensus emerged, at least for the short, very short run response regarding payouts and mortgage and rent freezes and stuff like that, that happened very quickly. But there was no paper. (laughs) where that was all written down. There was no playbook for economists on what to do should this thing occur. The closest were natural disasters, but even that was like at a rebuilding stage and other things like that. So I think given the scale of what we had and given the predictability of it, I think we can all wish we had spent time on this earlier. I hadn't. (laughs) For me, it was 
watching this occur and I did the same thing that everybody else did. I said, well, what's the thing that I can do? And as you've already noticed, I seem to write a lot of books and I said, well, how about I just do that? And so that's really where the books that I've written sort of came from. I guess where there's a difference is that a year later, I'm still working on this stuff. Whereas I think a lot of economists gave their foray into it, saw what would happen and then went back to normal. I was trained as an economic historian and and we rarely would cover anything related to epidemics or disease. And I think William McNeil was one of the first that really brought attention to the impact of disease. Now, of course, with Jared Diamond, his work has really made this something that historians have spent a lot of time mm-hmm. on. But right. but economists, it's kind of surprising because you said in your in your book that you had to learn a lot about epidemiology, but there are a lot of substantial overlaps between the way economists think and the way epidemiologists think. It's very similar. I mean, there's overlap in tools. There's overlap in thinking about equilibrium outcomes. There's overlap in that you've got some laws of motion upon which things occur. Epidemiology, in many respects, is closer to a social science than it is to a natural science. I think the most stunning thing about that and where the neglect is, is that epidemiologists' basic toolkit for the, in terms of the mathematical side of it, which of course was the entry point for most economists into that, was treated epidemics as if they were occurring in an animal population where the species didn't know what was going on. And one of the striking things, and other people had already noted this for some time, is that there is a behavioural side to this, of which economists were top of the list of people who should have been integrating this stuff in. And there are a few examples of it, which were very informative in terms of my understanding of the views. But many of the work of economists that leapt into this maintain the epidemiological assumptions mm-hmm. and didn't look at behaviour at all. And I think what we have found, at least, is that people's own behaviour mattered a lot more than many other stuff, including government policy in this whole endeavour. And moreover, I think it's absolutely critical for the debates that followed because public health people who are advising about policy interventions with assumptions about human behaviour tend to have a view of human behaviour that is very pessimistic. I regard them as a profession with some form of PTSD. They spent years telling people you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't drink, you should eat better and all this other stuff that people only half did is sort of generous, (laughs) but they seem to ignore it all the time. And so their views on anything, that people are going to do the wrong thing or they're going to go off in like a wandering child in the wrong direction. Whereas the economist presumption is that so long as the incentives are right, you can expect people who act in their self-interest and including not doing things that are harmful to their own self-interest, which actually turns out really to matter for a lot of things to do with this pandemic. Right. So I think in the early days, people were talking about the r naught of the disease as if this is some scientific constant rather than a yeah. function of behavior. Yeah, and they put in the r naught would get adjusted for policies with various assumptions on how affected the policies were. In between books, uh, I actually did some actual research and wrote a couple of papers. And one of the papers was I was very puzzled when you looked at calculations of the effective reproduction number, that is the 
at any given time, how many people are likely to be infected by an already infectious person with the coronavirus. It tended towards one. It'd jump up and down a bit, but worldwide, no matter which level of aggregation or whatever, it was tending towards one. And one is an important number because if the reproduction number is equal to one, that means that everybody who gets infected is likely to infect just one other person. And that means that over time, you're in kind of a steady state where the number of cases is constant over time, so long as nothing else changes, constant over time. And so, boy, that looked equilibrium-like mm-hmm. <laughs> going on. And I think that actually turned out to be the case. Basically, when cases are rising, people look at that and say, oh, cases are rising, it's riskier for me to be out. So at the margin, they adjust their behaviour and they distance. Lo and behold, that actually adds up and causes cases to drop. And if cases are falling, people do the reverse. And so it never gets to zero, which is what we'd all like, but it gets to this sort of steady outcome. And that was pretty important because it's important for how long you think an outbreak is going to occur and whether it's going to overload hospitals and things like that. So you can have these bumps up and down, but is it like going to wipe everything out? That's a very different strategy. It also has a sense about what the effectiveness of government policy is, because if people are adjusting their behaviour, if you put in government policy, people will adjust to that. So you're kind of pushing on a string in that regard. And thirdly, it really had an impact on calculation, you know, periodically, and and this has arisen, that you have people sort of arguing, oh, why don't we just let it rip, get this over and done with? Yeah, a few people died, that's it. That terrible economic trade-off one (laughs) that was right there at the beginning, and I start my book with it, actually, and, and go on. And the answer is, if you believe that people are doing free choice, they're choosing not to do that. You don't have the option of saying, let everybody get infected because people don't want to get infected. (laughs) People don't want that risk. In other words, in contrast to public health people thinking people won't take it into account, they very much take it into account. But what that means is that if if we didn't do anything, if we didn't have any vaccine and didn't do anything, it'd take a decade or more to just get the herd immunity. (laughs) And, And over that time, everybody's distancing and all those sectors that have been destroyed by that fact would continue to be so. So it really is something that was quite important. And I don't think anyone fully appreciated it. I don't think there was anyone advising governments who were taking into account that behavioural component properly in modelling. And I also think we were sort of lacking the information to do it properly as well. You know, if this was a macroeconomic crisis, we have a lot of information that we can go into a macroeconomic model. The fact that we had nothing here is a professional failing, it seems to me. Yeah, and I think uh, most sensible people would agree that you need to trust the experts to some degree and follow the science, obviously, to some degree. But it seems like the science was defined rather narrowly to mean virologists. But, you know, economists are scientists too, and especially behavioralist economists who focus on interactions of people and beliefs and how people communicate with one another. Certainly, there are a lot of other folks in the expert community besides virologists who would have something to say about optimal policy. I mean, in other areas of economics, we have the Dr. Fauci's, who are the people who would get listened to. But this entire area, we didn't have that person going on. And I think that's a, that is part of that equation, too. And, and here's where it gets frustrating, is the scientists doing their 
business. <laughs> They're coming up with various studies and, and, you know, critical facts. But at the same time, they've got to take that and it's got to go all the way to public policy. And in between there is this lump of stuff they don't know about, social science. And so they make guesses. And we saw some examples of that. For instance, right at the beginning of the pandemic, well known, the scientists were saying, you don't have to get the masks. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, at least that was the message going there. And I remember having myself in February last year, a strong argument with my co-authors on one of the other books about the scientists are telling us we don't need masks. We don't need masks. I'm not wearing masks on a plane. But, you know, why would I do that? It seems, and moreover, that masks are needed for other purposes. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be advice, which was, yes, it is true that there was a shortage of masks, and so we needed to get to, to the right people first. But at the same time, it wasn't true that we shouldn't be encouraging people to have masks and wear masks and things like that. And they made an assumption that if we tell people you should be wearing masks, they will end up hoarding these masks for these other purposes, and there'd be a problem. And so they decided to change the messaging because they were scientists and they can push forward the messaging and people are going to listen. Well, that created all sorts of issues. And I think we live with those issues to this day <laughs> regarding that one. And I think we're living with it now as well, because we were told any old mask would do. It's not 100% clear, actually, whether we don't need better masks. None of us have better masks. I don't wear a better mask. No one's told me to wear a better mask. I don't really want to try and find one. <laughs> but, you know, my bias because being an economist, my bias is you tell the truth and you try to present the truth clearly and, and see what happens, including all of its warts and nuances and exceptions, and hopefully it'll work out. Whereas I think the translation of scientific messaging coming from scientists have been, no, 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 we can't trust people to interpret information, mm -hmm. so we must siphon it. And that can work, so long as you don't have to change that information, so long as you don't have to change the recommendation. Mm -hmm. But we didn't know enough about this virus at the beginning to make that call. <laughs> and all of the advice told was flu advice. And we're still going on with that flu advice. All this disinfectant and you know, washing hands, not that those are bad things, but certainly lots of disinfectant everywhere. And there are businesses out there who still have to wipe everything down every day and stuff like that. That's very costly and maybe harmful, but that's all still going on because that's what we did initially. Mm -hmm. And I fear that this was a lack of preparation is also another symptom of that, is that we haven't got that down. Well, you teach strategy, and I think strategy as a, as a discipline is uniquely relevant, I think, for these sorts of complex events, these complex disruptive crises, in part because strategists are good at integrating information from a variety of disciplines. They're interested in thinking through complex adaptive systems. They're interested in thinking in terms of, of optionality. And yet I've kind of gotten the sense throughout this crisis from the very earliest days onward that there wasn't a lot of real strategic thinking going on in policy circles in terms of thinking through what's the end game, thinking through if we're going to go back to square one, which is what the original lockdown was for, you know, we're buying ourselves some optionality, but that means we, we need to go out and aggressively gather the information that we need in order to make the right decisions. And it, it felt like the information gathering was not focused. It wasn't really targeting the answers to the questions that we needed in order to move to the next stage. This has been a constant theme. The stuff that was done in preparation for the pandemic largely was, here are the things you need to do 
so it stops it spreading in the way that we've ended up having. So we can contain it to geographic areas and so on and so forth. And as it turned out, there were some failures to that system. And any system like that was never 100% secure anyway. Then you moved into this new phase where it was all over the place. And that was a completely different phase and there was no playbook for it. Because once you get to that point, the set of things you should do are now critically dependent on things you don't know. So there was various bits of information that were missing all along. Obviously, the way this got through was terrible messaging coming out regarding human-to-human transmission. Mm. But every time I think about this, human-to-human transmission really is the most important thing. (laughs) Mm. All the other ways you can get sick are things we know how to deal with. Human-to-human transition is a complete disaster. And the only thing we currently can do immediately is treat everybody as if they're equally dangerous and say, well, you're all equally dangerous, I'm dangerous, everybody should should go and hide. That was the strategy. Now, there are obvious problems to that, <laughs> as, we, as we know. There's obviously issues to that. But that was the strategy. By contrast, when you think about that and the costs associated with that, you realise that at its fundamental level, the reason we're treating everybody as equally risky is not because they are equally risky, they're not, because we don't know who is the riskiest person. And look, it would be a completely different matter if one in two people you met was infected. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's more like one in 4,000. And in other words, we were all treating ourselves as dangerous when only one in 4,000 or whatever, those orders of magnitudes were. Once you say it that way, you say, well... If you explain this to a child, they would say, well, let's find out who that person is and maybe they should be isolated. (laughs) And that turns out to be exactly right. So the challenge is it's less once we've found that person isolating them, there are ways to do that, although even that turned out to occasionally have problems. It's just finding that person or finding even a group of people who are more likely to be that person than not. So that is the fundamental information problem of pandemics. And if you can solve that, then you're done with this thing, (laughs) is the other thing. It took me a little while to come around to realize that this calamity was more solvable than people were saying. And it wasn't going to require necessarily vaccine and other things like that if we could just get our head around it. But that turned out to be a non-obvious view to a lot of people. And it certainly wasn't the way in which health people that I was speaking to had had talked about it. So it was more a uniquely economic strategy type approach. What is the fundamental problem here and can we solve that? But there were a number of people who were onto that. Paul Romer was onto it very quickly and suggested almost a year ago that we should be spending whatever it takes to mass test everybody. And I've now come to learn that it's easier said than done. (laughs) But we hadn't even got to the situation until very recently that people started to agree that that was a good idea. And so we're really struggling. But the countries that either by direction or because it was part of the plan really solved the information problem have by and large been able to operate. Nothing's normal because the world is in a pandemic, but as normal as you would ever hope to get. They're, they're getting, you know, full marks for what they've been able to do. That sort of proves it to me. And moreover, you know, previous pandemics that should have been worse, like SARS and MERS, because the virus solved their own 
information problem by having symptoms appear before you're infectious were stamped out so quickly, (laughs) so quickly, even though they were scarring at the time for the countries involved, they fade from memory very quickly. That's very compelling to me. And that also suggests that on every level of thinking about pandemics now, which we can do right now, and also into the future, this informational infrastructure and having it available is critical. And moreover, you start to think about it and you say, why haven't we got this for the flu? Why haven't we got this for all the other stuff, all the other infectious diseases? Why is it just this? Yeah, and I think when you describe this as fundamentally an information problem, I mean, I think that's that's 100% correct. If if you're flying blind, I think you make this point in, in the book, and you're just wielding this this broad hammer, then you really only have two choices, one of which is let her rip, and the other one is is complete lockdown. But if, as you say, everyone who was infectious had a red nose that was glowing, then this thing could be over very quickly. One of the other informational pieces I think that has been lacking is also some measure of vulnerability. So on the one hand, we don't know who is the source of the negative externalities, right? Who is, who is actually infectious. But on the other hand, we also don't know who's likely to be harmed with right. any kind of precision. And it seems like if you go back to your work on, on artificial intelligence, on data science, this seems like a rather simple data science problem if you have good medical records. You should be able to come up with a fairly simple decision tree that says, you know what, you're 99.999% likely to live and, and you, maybe it's more like 80%. Why haven't we come up with really good numbers there? The most obvious reason, and this is crept up all the time, privacy laws. Mm-hmm. I know that generates emotions on all sorts of things. So, you know, whatever your concern about privacy is fine. However, None of that's free. Privacy is expensive, and this is the expense. The expense is that you're concerned about abuse of information or whatever, and especially about health. It's nothing more important than health. It isn't collected. It isn't shared. It isn't put in places where it can be analysed. And so there's just nothing that people can gather for that information. And some countries are a little better on this. South Korea and Taiwan They relaxed their privacy laws because of previous pandemics, which allowed them to do a lot more stuff. Is there some wholesale abuse coming from that? I doubt it. (laughs) So that's the ultimate thing. That said, I've now transitioned in the last few months into working on actually trying to get rapid testing and screening out in a large way into the, the population to solve this. Part of a consortium, a private consortium with 12 Canadian companies, and actually it's just going to expand to many more who are running pilots and other things on that. And it's taken months to get a whole lot of things in place. And the informational challenges are quite extreme. The adherence, when you're testing employees for their health, you need consent. The employers have to be make undertakings that they won't abuse that knowledge in some way, that information cannot leave the employer itself. So you can't just sort of share it amongst everything and all the way to public health, which makes it very difficult if your interest is as as well as was seeing how well this worked and trying to improve the systems and stuff like that. And so those are big challenges. Then there's just having an IT infrastructure to record this information. You know, there's a sort of view today, ah, oh, yeah, you can just knock that up in some some app and whatever. 
Yes and no. <laughs> yeah, we can do that better than we did before. But for a lot of people, the best technology still is Excel spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked to discover how much of our public health information regarding COVID data, all those data that we see all over the place, is still hand-coded, collected on spreadsheets, mm-hmm. moved over to another office. Then they discover they're double-counting and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's happening all the time. And that seems like, wow. I didn't think that was so hard a problem, but I think it's it's not a hard problem, but it's it's hard to do in a crisis, and it's hard to do in places that haven't been doing it before, and it's hard to do it when you have to have different systems as usual talk to each other. So all of those things regarding IT adoption that people in our profession have studied for years come to the fore, and getting it in place is quite challenging. So I have a new appreciation for, yeah, it's very easy to write a book and say, you just solve the friggin' information problem. But, you know, it's easier said than done. There could be some stuff that's removed out of the way, regulatory-wise or whatever, but still that doesn't get you <laughs> nearly as much as you'd hope. But that takes us back to sort of basic cost-benefit analysis. You know, I was recently reading in the state of California, there was quite a bit of fraud in the unemployment claims. And this is fraud that could have been eliminated with some fairly cheap IT systems, or even just having some manual labor, you know, just having a couple of college kids reviewing different files or, you know, comparing different spreadsheets in alphabetical order. But when you get back to testing, it seems like if, if I were to tell somebody that there exists a technology which will essentially identify whether you're infected or not, or infectious or not, you know, that can give us that red nose classifier and it already exists and it has existed for, for a long time, and yet it's not being rolled out, I, I think most people would be surprised. I mean, I, I find it a little surprising. When I've learned about rapid testing, I've learned about the efficacy of rapid testing and how long it's been around. I really want to hear your thoughts about why we haven't had a rapid testing regime since very early on in the crisis. I definitely have a view on that. The problem was, again, it's the difference in in the mindset of a medical professional scientist and someone like economist or a business person. The issue was that we had a test for whether you were infected with the coronavirus that was deadly accurate. (laughs) This virus gets into you and it starts off, there's not much of it around. It's kind of, it would be hard to find it. And then it replicates in you in many billions of fold times. And that's when you start exiting your body and infecting other people. But the tests that were developed were the ones that they'll pick it up if it's everywhere, but they'll also pick it up if it's very, very small amounts of the virus in you. And to give you a sense of how sensitive these tests are, they can pick up traces of the coronavirus in sewage, wastewater Mm. sewage, at a wastewater plant taking a sample when it's in the population, but not like everybody's got it Mm -hmm. because they're so targeted. And so if you're a scientist, you look at that and say, that is a modern miracle. That is fantastic. That is the gold standard of testing. (laughs) That's what you want. And that's true if you want to know for sure if someone's got the virus in them or not. But there's a few problems with that. One problem is it's so good. It's, It's based on detecting RNA fragments. It'll detect them whether they're active, that is, they can produce more of them, 
or inactive. That is on their way out being they're dead and they've just left over from the havoc that's raining on your body. And in fact, it turns out if you took a randomly infected person, two thirds of the time, the virus is dead. Now we're not worried about dead virus. We're not worried about dead virus for spreading it. And we're not worried about dead virus for treating people. It's useful to know if you're interested, oh, they were infected previously or recently. It's useful to know for that purpose. So the problem is that the information problem that I wanted to solve was I want to identify people when they're infectious, mm-hmm. not just infected, infectious, causing harms to others, and then isolate them. Well, the problem with these PCR tests, there's several problems. One is it's hard to scale because they're pretty expensive and you need labs to process them and things like that. There's some rapid versions of it, but even those require equipment and medical professionals and other things like that. So that limits you in scale and that limits how often you can take them. And if you've ever, I've had one of these once where they stick a big long thing up your nose, it's not pleasant either. (laughs) You don't have to do that, by the way, but they do that because that's the best. Although I believe at the moment, the best is an anal swab which apparently the scientists do have limits on how far they go for the best. (laughs) Anyhow, so that's all raises the cost of these things. It also delays the results. The results can take a day, and if the labs are overloaded, many days to come back. Now, that's a problem if you're wanting to isolate people. Now, if you're isolating them already, that means they've got to sit isolated for a lot longer. If they're not isolating, it's even worse (laughs) because they could be doing damage. Even if you find out that you've tested negative, Because the data is so old, you can't feel good about going out in public at that point. You could have gotten infected over that three-day period. So there's all manner of things. The information you want is not only the information of when you're infectious, but you want it really quickly. (laughs) And that's why the rapid in rapid tests really matters. But the flip side, so we have this other testing technology called antigen tests that can be rapid and really cheap. Whereas PCR tests, the genetic ones, cost you $100 a pop. These other ones cost you under $5 a pop. And you get the results pretty much right away. That seems like the technology. But the objection was, but they're not as good. What do they mean by good? Well, if you have these small amounts of the virus in you, it might register you as negative. When you've had some of the virus in you, therefore, well, that's terrible. That means you've been registered negative, but that's a false negative. And there's no more worse thing than a false negative in a pandemic because... <laughs> you're infected and you're and you believe you're not. <laughs> but that isn't the relevant equation. The relevant equation is are you getting results of negative when you're still infectious? And the answer turns out to be no. Because when you're infectious, your viral load is at this really high level. On both the PCR and the antigen test, you'll come up positive. The only time they disagree is in that window where you are not infectious, but infected. Mm -hmm. But I don't care if you're not infectious for solving the information problem. So it costs less, the results come quicker, and it actually better matches Mm -hmm. the information to the decision we want to make. So it looks like a no-brainer to me. However, that third thing has held everything up. Yeah. Because every measure did not take that into account. I have theories about what mental barriers were in that place, slowly but surely the experts have been moving over and and understanding this issue and whatever biases they've got have been alleviating that given they're running out of tools to, to fight this thing. But it was fairly obvious to me, at least a long time ago, 
that there's no way you wanted to make the perfect the enemy of the good in this case. They were happy to have screens that were as perfect as temperature checks. Well, this was much, much better than that. Well, I mean, it seems a strategic approach would be to start with the objective and then work backward to the best way to achieve that objective. But in many cases, you, you wind up fixating on some intermediate objective, which is right. often inconsistent with your final objective. But it's still going on. I see it every day. There's an article in The Lancet appeared today still arguing about that particular point. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is craziness. It seems so obvious to me, but I don't know what proportion of the of medical professionals out there still disagree <laughs> with that, but it's it's large. Well, the other thing I think is that economists are good at, at trade-offs. So we know when to do ceteris paribus and, and when not to. And I think if if you were to hold the number of tests constant and the frequency of tests constant and the arrival of information constant and the cost constant, then PCR would be the superior choice. But none of those things are, are constant. Discussions I've seen, they don't seem to acknowledge that if you can get 20 or 30 rapid tests for every dollar you spend on a PCR test, and you can have someone tested every day instead of once a week or once every two weeks, then you should be doing a confusion matrix on that sequence of tests rather than on, on a single test, right? And if you did that, the confusion matrix would look a lot better for the, the sequence of rapid tests. Even if accuracy is what you're after, you'd get a better accuracy score. Even if we get to that stage, then the next objection that comes up is, well, what are people going to do with that information? Mm-hmm. If you tell someone they're positive and then we've got privacy laws, maybe they'll, they'll run around and do bad stuff. And a couple of college students did just that. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, college students, we can sanction. Uh, so they stopped and colleges have been pretty good. What's worse? What if you take one of these tests and you're negative? Well, then you'll have all confidence that you should be able to go and do stuff normally. And I look at that as an economist and say, Yeah, that was kind of the idea. The idea is that we all feel safer and we know mostly people are safe and we've de-risked the situation. So, yeah, the public health issue. So that is a disaster because these things aren't perfect. Nothing is perfect. Agreed. And so if you have all these people feeling confident, we're going to have another explosion in the virus and an outbreak. That may well be the case. (laughs) But also, if you're doing this very frequently, you'll pick that up too. So my bias is... I'm not worried about people having information, but their bias is people can't be trusted to know things about themselves. I don't know how we resolve that tension. I don't know when that comes in. One of the things I liked in your first book was when you were discussing the kind of standard trade-off between health and the economy, you notice that, that this is not a smooth and continuous function, the kind that economists like to talk about, and that there are these increasing returns and and these corner solutions. Could you talk a little bit about, I found that a very interesting analysis. It's very funny. When I got the initial feedback on the book dealing with health versus wealth as a trade-off, there were all sorts of people who just objected. How dare you even say that? But as an economist, this is often the case, is we do things and you can spend a little bit less on health, which is saving you money, and you get some worse health, and you you adjust it to fine-tune it to whatever balance you want. The issue that it seemed to me with regard to pandemics is it was very hard to have a little bit of a pandemic or a little bit more of a pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. At least what the, the models were all saying is you could sort of have no pandemic. It was like a corner which you got nothing and you kept it all at bay, or, or you let it run and you have a lot of it. <laughs> 
And so what that meant is that you weren't facing the, I want a little bit of health and a little bit less wealth or vice versa. It's either a crappy economy, but we've kept everybody safe or everybody's sick, but we have a good economy. Although even that one was kind of a fault. I didn't believe we could even get that <laughs> latter part, but at least that's what the models were saying. And so there was a, as if there was a big bite that you had to leap between those two points. And this was at the time, which was only a few weeks into this, this didn't seem to have actually translated ever anywhere, mm-hmm. <laughs> that notion. I think there was a lot of time spent trying to convince economists that our normal trade-off intuition yep. wasn't going to hold. But the idea, I think, with your work is that with more information, you can at least push that frontier out a little bit more towards yeah, yeah something a little higher. I think basically having a good information structure alleviates that big trade-off that you need to make. In other words, or more to the point is it allows you to keep people safe and keep the economy open. So there's no trade-off at all if you can invest in that. So it's not a bad thing, that's for sure. So one of the reasons why I call this podcast on siloed is that I think that oftentimes when we're asking questions, we tend to focus too narrowly on the question. And, and we've talked about the trade-off between health and, and the economy, but even within health, there's a trade-off between deaths due to COVID and, and deaths due to these other things that, that could happen as a result of some of the actions we take against COVID. There's trade-offs between investing in, in treatment and investment in prevention and investment in, in cure. When you mention in the book that we really have to think of this kind of like a war, right? And when you put the country into a war footing, it requires that you have more centralized decision-making and that centralized decision-making is capable of seeing all of the different possible ways of, of obtaining victory and understanding the trade-offs and, and that if you do more of this, you're going to have to do less of that. Do you think that we've taken that seriously? I mean, I have the sense that we haven't really taken this on as a war. And, and part of it is we look at the view of medical ethics, for instance. You mentioned ethics in, in the book or privacy as potential obstacles to putting things on a war footing. The one thing you scare yourself with a little bit of mathematical knowledge is exponential processes are very scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once I realized that, you know, we had like uh, 20 cases in Canada at this sort of growth rate. And if I did some calculation of the number of hospital beds, it was like a month away from all of that being overloaded and we would be making those really bad decisions. It seemed to me that, well, the market wasn't going to solve any of this anywhere. And when you're faced with this sort of situation, you want to treat it like a war. If you need to get, at the time, ventilators, you're going to have to go and seize the means of production and actually go and do that because there's no simple price thing that's going to guide the right investment and repurposing, etc., in the right time. And we already been through that in war times. We moved to a centrally planned economy for exactly that reason, because we've got one buyer, essentially. Mm-hmm. We then have to understand what that buyer is going to want. And so that kind of thinking would have been important throughout this. It's the same rationale as to why we had lockdowns, which is essentially a restricting people's movement. That's about as draconian as we ever get. It's the same reason we had to spend oodles of money on vaccine acceleration, vaccine development, and other things. And even there, we haven't done that according to how you could explain it to anybody sensibly because we've done it on this sort of country-by-country basis and all of this stuff. And it's history's not going to, to look back on and think that that was all good. And then we also have some things which in that mix have got neglected. Obviously, 
solving the information problem was something that I think government should have done and didn't realise to do. And I think now, actually, that we've really neglected treatments. We have some good treatments for, for this, much better than before, but we still have a lot of people dying. If, as people are saying, that this is not really ever going away, vaccine and all, we're going to need better treatments. And so we haven't done that either. That's falling back into our normal cause of doing these things. And that seems to me sad. Basically, anything that had a good chance of some impact in this global pandemic, the rate of return was phenomenal for any expenditure you might do. And somehow we've managed to see that with things like stimulus checks and da da da, but all this other stuff, not, which is like, I don't get it. And that's across the world. Mm. No country seems to have picked off all the high rate of return things mm. very clearly. The closest to it is whatever Israel did to get the vaccine so quickly. I'd like you to say a few words about preparedness for these kind of low probability events. One of the reasons why we would run out of capacity in ICU so quickly is because we've been operating on maximum capacity utilization. I mean, this is what you want to do if you're running a, a system. This is what we teach in business schools. You don't want to have a lot of empty beds, you know, sitting around right. when, when you don't really expect to ever have to use them. And you mentioned that you can't really buy insurance against these sorts of things. And so at some level, the government has to be the, the provider of the insurance for these, these sorts of events. Why is it that we, we haven't yeah. been thinking through these low probability events? You mentioned kind of comets hitting the earth and pandemics and, and other kinds of incidents. It's an excellent question. It's interesting. We had a previous global pandemic far worse than this one. We've had several. Some were more targeted, such as the AIDS epidemic, which is far worse. But 1918 to 20 influenza pandemic was staggering in its weight. But what's more impressive is given that it killed more people than World War I and World War II combined, had this huge impact on civilian population. And at the time, if you read about it, it was a thing. <laughs> and it was affecting young people. You would expect that that would have been a big part of history books. Mm -hmm. It was in the memory. When I was growing up and learning about history, it was in the memory of the people who wrote those books. Some of them would have gone through it as children and things like that. Yet it was nowhere to be seen. There were no memorials to 1918. There's one in New Zealand, interestingly enough, that was set up in 2019 convincing the Prime Minister there, which is, is proving my point in terms of the importance of these things. So it got forgotten. A research question for me is why. A research question for me is why it was forgotten. I actually picked up this as a child. I still remember puzzling over a children's sort of picture book thing, like for a seven or eight-year-old on world history, and it had a two-set page on the influenza. It had a map of the world, had a guy sort of sneezing <laughs> on the page, and it had numbers of people who died in each country. And I looked at Australia, and, and Australia, a million people died. A million. I mean, it didn't have that many people. It only had a few million people, but a million died of this thing. I remembered that. <laughs> but I never heard mm -hmm. about that any other time. I never heard any discussion. I never heard any discussion that basically every single issue we're faced from mask wearing to distancing to the debates to misinformation to whatever and to flattening the curve to the whole thing we're all experienced then we're all experienced then and yet that isn't in anyone's classrooms that is not a common knowledge i have historian friends who do not have 
huge volumes of things that they can say about it any more than reading this great book called The Great Influenza, which tells you a lot about it. And thirdly, it also has this other message that pandemic didn't just magically end one day. It's still with us today because we still have these viruses circulating. And I feel that if that was in our collective memories better, we would have done a better job here. And it's almost inevitable that we're about to do the same thing mm-hmm. again. <laughs> that we're so tired of it, no one will want to talk about it. I mean, we're a, we're a month away from Donald Trump being president, and I bet you you walk around and people can't quite remember that either. <laughs> <laughs> and that was more exciting than what we're going through now. So I find that that's the disturbing thing. And so that tells us not just about small probability events, but about how we process these things and therefore can prepare for it and therefore can hold our leaders Mm. to the fire if they're not prepared for it. And occasionally there'd be a burst of energy and stockpiles would be built up for something, but then the next round it gets cut somewhere. And in Canada, Canada had a world-beating, well, it was the world surveillance system using the internet to be able to track down these global pandemics. And that pretty much just got cut as a budget item in 2009, and they didn't tell anyone, and we all paid the price. We all paid the price. What's even more surprising is that this was the centennial of the 1918 flu. I think I bought I bought at least four books on the 1918 flu in 2018, so, so it was pretty fresh. There were people, you know, Bill Gates, Jeff Skoll, it's not like these things weren't around, being burned into memory. And, and there's a part of me that feels that this pandemic hasn't been bad enough. It seems crazy, but uh, in the real harmful stuff, it hasn't been bad enough to, to sear its way in. You mentioned similarities between the pandemic and financial crises, and I, I found the, that discussion fascinating. Perhaps there's another similarity there, which might be around the belief that we can't have a financial crisis similar to the one we had ever again, that we've solved that problem. Yeah, there's something to that. Let's face it, we do a lot better, believe it or not, than financial crisis than we do in pandemics, it seems right at this moment. Ultimately, my dream is of a secretly and well-funded cabal of people who have the ability to go in and deal with the pandemics and we never see it again because it all works just well and, and people understand that proud tradition in history. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get to that. I think you called it like a central bank for pandemics, which I I like that analogy. I think it has to be these sorts of people who just constantly beating that we understand that they must exist and give them authority and independence. Originally, I thought maybe we'd need a supernatural authority, and we need some of that for sure. But I think we need it in every country as well because there are local issues. I haven't got all the answers on that, but you can't help when you write a book think about some of those things. So it's an evolving state. Eventually, I think we need to have some sort of Bretton Woods-like conference where we all agree on what the global system is, and hopefully we'll get to that soon. So now that we have a vaccine out, and in your book you predicted that there was going to be some difficult decisions around rationing, kind of the sequencing of vaccines, and how this might mean that you have people who have essentially their own version of a red nose, which is the, the vaccination card which would allow them to re-enter society. I was wondering, talk a little bit about that, but also we could have done this back in in February and March as well, right? We could have had cards for people who had been sick and and recovered because they're in more or less the same position as somebody who's vaccinated. And and we decided not to do that. We decided we did not want to have 
a division between people who are safe and people who are vulnerable. We would rather just not yeah. uh, allow that into policy. But now it looks like we're going to have to. Tell us a bit about your thinking. And I think a lot of what your, your discussion has to do with networks and how we need to understand networks. If we really want to interrupt the transmission of a disease, whether it's containment or vaccination, we need to understand how people interact with one another. There are so many issues there. <laughs> it's almost overwhelming. And there are more issues than policymakers have the where for all to confront. For instance, so at the moment, fairly predictable things are going on with regard to vaccination. And predictable tensions are coming up. Let's just take the reopening of schools, currently resisted by teachers. And I can understand that. It can be risky. And that's not surprising. And so you look at that and say... But we all agree, don't we, that schools should need to be reopened. Parents are going crazy, the kids are going crazy, we believe education's important. So we have this group called teachers, depending on where you are, like here in Ontario, there's 100,000 of them, <laughs> out of a population of 10 million, okay? And you say to yourself, 100,000, so that's a week's worth of vaccines. Mm -hmm. So if we gave them priority of vaccines, we'd have kids back in school now rather than wait for them all to be vaccinated in all their glory, which could be four months from now. And so you say to yourself, well, that doesn't seem like a hard decision at all, yet we still don't do it. <laughs> we have other things which are less uh, palatable necessarily than schools. We have whole lots of population still working. Most of the source of our spreading is coming from distribution centres and meat packers and all that sort of stuff, to the extent they haven't already had the virus. Why aren't we prioritising that? We have the Olympics coming up. Oh, we might have to cancel this event. It costs $20 billion to do. Why? Because we don't want to vaccinate the 10,000 athletes. 10,000! I calculated if the United States wanted to vaccinate the 10,000 athletes first, how long would everybody else have to wait? How much longer? And the answer was 45 seconds. So <laughs> you look at that and say, we clearly don't know what we were doing. And that's even aside from some obvious facts, such as this. Currently, all of the vaccine is being distributed in the United States widely. So the basic thought is, well, unless you get to 80, 85%, people aren't safe. And we don't know if even people who are vaccinated might spread the virus a bit and all that sort of stuff. So what that's saying is until generously, six months from now, more like 12 we can't open up any of the 50 economies in the United States. Well, that's crazy. So the idea is that we're all going to wait, all of the economies, because we're going to be fair in this distribution. What you would do if you were a sane person is you would say, let's pick this state first, let's pick this state first, and <laughs> open them up in sequence, <laughs> because then you get all the states opening, and you know some states get six, 12 months more, mm -hmm. some don't, whatever. And you do things that way. Those are the sort of sensible things to do. And yet none of that calculation is going in. The amount we're willing to pay because of perceived fairness, mm -hmm. and I call it perceived because nothing's fair, <laughs> is quite extraordinary. And that's beside the point that at the moment, I thought in my book that if you got vaccinated, it will be this prize. Mm -hmm. At the moment, the prize to getting vaccinated is you're safer. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but it's not that you get to do everything else. You still have to wear a mask, you still have to distance, all of those sorts of things. We see our leaders who are vaccinated doing all of those things. In other words, the message is that there's no benefit to being yeah. vaccinated. Well, how is that going to square with the people who sort of think, why should I be vaccinated 
it's kind of still new or maybe there's side effects. What's my benefit? Well, you're protected. I'm already protected. No one's coming near me. (laughs) The similar questions arose back when people were infected. I mean, there was two coaches on the sidelines of an NFL game who had recovered from COVID who were each fined a quarter million dollars for not wearing masks when scientifically there was very little evidence that they posed a danger to anybody purely because we wanted to you know, send the message. We were worried that people could not make the distinction or that it would encourage people to go out and get infected intentionally so that they could get these privileges, right? Yeah, which is possible, I guess. Who knows? And in some situations, we're quite happy to do that, like chicken box with kids. It's one of those things that is perplexing. But the bigger cost is we're currently vaccinating those people yeah. too. I think the CDC estimated that 80 million people had already been infected as of November. That's 80 million people who will get vaccinated before 80 million people in another country. Right. And that was 80 million in November. So by now it's probably... That is kind of appalling, yeah. really. <laughs> and that is all for not collecting the information because we're worried that people might, I don't know what. Mm-hmm. Right. A couple other things you mentioned. I love your concept of the contact budget. I've had a number of conversations with people about that as a sort of a personal health rule. And I think it has applications in a, in a variety of other areas in life about how you manage your, your risk profile. I couldn't end without asking you some questions about the macro consequences of the pandemic and the policies that can be taken to mitigate the negative consequences of the pandemic. And in the book, you, you talk about unworkable proposals like the, the great pause where everybody just stops making payments on everything, but there's an irreversibility. It's a short period of time. It would have worked. Right. We can stop everything and freeze it for a short period of time. It's just after there's only so long. <laughs> like daylight savings time, right? Yeah. We could coordinate and say, hey, everybody stop. Right. <laughs> Go home. Reset the calendars. All the obligations will be moved 30 to 60 mm-hmm. days around and then we'll all be fine. Right. So we couldn't do that. You're right. There's macroeconomic consequences and we're in a really tough position now. So by and large, the effect of this is a, a shock to leisure. The sectors that have been hardest hit are the sectors which are more optional. So they tend to be leisure sectors. And thankfully, we all know that we've all moved to consuming leisure, non-labor intensive leisure, such as Netflix. Those sectors of entertainment, food, restaurants, and all its glory and travel have been completely decimated. And now we've got a bit of an issue because on the one hand, you're sort of saying, we would like the pandemic to end and then those sectors to come roaring back as quickly as possible to manage this. On the other, everybody's talking about it saying, how will I take as many business trips as I did previously? I've got used to ordering in, et cetera, et cetera. Based on my sort of reading of history, I actually think people are going to fly back to all these things much more than expected, but there might be effects. And the problem is, do you really want to support those industries when actually what is needed is some adjustment because the world has accelerated? I don't know how to adjudicate that problem, but that is a problem we currently face. Do you think there's a silver lining? You know, there are a lot of technological innovations that have an upfront fixed cost and Companies will resist the disruption necessary internally and, and the costs required to kind of overcome that hump. And those, right. those companies that had been putting off or delaying these digital transformations have more or less had to bite the bullet. And you know, we've seen in previous wars, investments that were made in things like radar and microwaves, jump-started entire sectors. Could it be that countries like the U.S. that have incurred these expenditures 
will be better positioned to compete globally going forward because they're they're more digitally savvy? I think there is a big extent to which the cost of doing those experiments that people knew they ought to do, but too disruptive to current arrangements, dropped considerably. Uh, nothing more than the online experiments in education being a huge example of that. I'm not sure where that's going to end up back as, but it certainly happened. To the extent that we became comfortable with things like business meetings, not having to be face-to-face, we're all now acutely aware. I think it'll be very hard for you to sit a couple of days in an airport to go for a meeting now. I think that will be a struggle. So is the US well positioned for it? Yes, I think other countries are as well. I don't think that's necessarily going to be national-centric type of effect going on there. But there's no doubt that the countries who've had the pandemic worse for longer have experienced those changes more. And I guess someone will come and uh, will measure those persistent effects later on. But who knows? I'm in two minds on it. You catch me on a different day, I'll have a different opinion. One day when I'm looking at all the snow out and thinking of that and saying, yeah, of course, we're going to work from home forever. On other (laughs) days, I'm like, I haven't been talked to anyone for so long, blah, blah, blah. I can't imagine spending all this time at home again. I know the limits of my ability to make a rational assessment, and I think that's true of pretty much everybody, which is a complete disaster for business leaders trying to work out what they're supposed to be doing. Right, Joshua, thanks so much. This has been great. Everybody should check out the Pandemic Information Gap and the Pandemic information solution. And also, I think you're, you're updating this more or less in real time on your blog, right? Yeah. So I've got a Substack. It's not hard to find, joshuagans.substack.com, where I write three times a week. I can't believe I'm still doing this <laughs> with yet new issues regarding economics and strategy in the pandemic. This has been great. And hopefully I'll get you back sometime where we can talk about your other work, your pre-pandemic work. You've been disrupted pretty much by this. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.